0: All right, it's the DT Difference. It's 30 years experience in the game, DT Systems. E-collars we've been using for a while now, but let's quickly talk about their dummy launchers. They got the Super Pro Dummy Launcher and the Remote Dummy Launcher. It's a great way for you and your dog to get ready for duck season. Loud bangs, make sure your dog's cool with gunfire before you use it. But I want you to add it to your repertoire, bag of tricks, and get you and your dog ready for duck season. It's the Super Pro dummy launcher by dt all right baby gunner kennels man one of the things that i love about gunner kennels is they're thinking about our older hunting buddies old buck he hangs out in a gunner kennel when he goes to and fro and in his we've got the ortho pad he's got the old joints and even if your dog's not old like buck you just want a little bit of added protection as you're rolling down the road to keep that dog from bouncing around a little bit so the ortho pad super huge if you got a younger dog that may dig a little bit maybe chew a little bit that performance pad is going to be clutch as well so check it out it's the full kit brought to you by gunner kennels always innovating our industry and always keeping your dog safe the DMs if you'd like to learn more about getting you and your dog into a gunner cattle. Force fetch. What is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it, you and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. Welcome to Lone Ducks, Gun Dog Chronicles, episode 14. Kevin, Birdie, and myself are sitting here, super excited for tonight's episode. We've got the Super Retriever Series crown champion and second place winner, Clark Kennington from Kennington Retrievers. Clark, man, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to answer some of our questions and talk about the Super Retriever Series. How are you doing today, buddy?
1: Man, I'm doing great. I appreciate y'all having
0: me on. We're excited to have you. Clark, let's kick this thing off right. I want to know who you are and how you got into the dog game.
1: Man, I honestly, I got into the dog world just like anybody else. I started out just as a duck hunter. Um, and it all started with a dog that I have named Max, who's now almost 14 years old. That's who started my business and when I first got him you know I was just like anybody else I just wanted a duck dog I didn't know anything about the hunt test I for sure didn't know anything about the super retriever series um I got max and actually sent him to another pro for a while got him back after that for five months and then I took on training him and like I said I just wanted a duck dog and uh a friend of mine talked me into going to my very first hunt test in Vicksburg Mississippi um almost 14 years ago and um I went and ran started and saw the starter dogs, and then I saw the seasoned dogs and thought that it was just cool. And then when I saw the finished dogs, I, I thought to myself, I've got to have one of those. And uh, that kind of created the journey. You know, me and Max started running, and we got our starter title within a month. We got our HR title and season within the next two months. And uh, this all was in the, in the spring, and by that fall, we had our hunting retriever champion title, and that next spring, Max was running the grand.
0: Holy cow. Um, so we really
1: the, you went we town on running. that. You know, I, I just fell in love with it, and I worked with another pro for a while. And while I was in college, I started taking a few dogs in to train, and two led to four, and four led to eight, and eight led to sixteen. And next thing I knew, I was like, you know, this is what I want to do with my life. So I stopped going to school and just started training dogs. So
0: good for you. Who was the trainer that you worked with?
1: I learned in the very beginning from a trainer named Ronnie Lee. Uh, and I learned a lot from that man. He's one of the best trainers there is out there, and I uh, spent a lot of time with him. And he ran Max in his first grand, and uh, he actually did a lot of Max's basics on him for those first five months, and learned a lot from him. Very grateful for it.
0: That's really cool. I didn't know that you did that with Ronnie. That's cool.
1: Sure did. Yep, sure did.
0: Now, uh, before we started the podcast, you mentioned that you're in Arkansas right now doing a little guiding. Tell everybody about that
1: yeah absolutely um i kind of need a break just like the dogs do when it's all said and done and um my break is i go guiding you know a lot of my dogs go home for duck season um so i got at a place called big creek ducks and bucks out of Moore, arkansas um one of the managers there and thoroughly enjoy it we killed a bunch of ducks open a weekend it's kind of slow the rest of the week now it's closed and we're shooting a bunch of speckle bellies right now but it's a uh, it's a good time it's 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 a way that i'm gonna duck out one way or another but i get paid to duck out this way so it makes it even better
0: heck yeah buddy that's awesome um talk to me about duck numbers down there we up here in new york are having a really strange fall and winter and it's totally changed the waterfowl season for us what are you seeing down there for numbers
1: well it was really odd we had a big push of birds before the season ever started like the week before and then a lot of them left before the season started no everybody killed a lot of ducks the first two days and then after that they were gone i mean nobody i know in the state of arkansas only killed ducks in big numbers after that first weekend the few that did were all in the river bottoms um is where all the mallards seem to be concentrated but even there it's not the numbers we're used to seeing so
2: gotcha.
1: it's kind of a little different year right now uh, we've got a lot of geese down here but not very many ducks gotcha so I'm hoping we get some in before this next split opens up
0: yeah no doubt about it um, that's pretty cool so what I would like to do now is I want to talk about HRC which is I'm gonna break this down for people who don't know not not you but um, if we inter- if Clark or I inter- interchange things, there's AKC, so the American Kennel Club Hunt Test, which is your junior, senior, and master level. And then there's UKC, which is United Kennel Club, and their hunt test is called HRC, or Hunting Retriever Club, right? <laughs> yeah, Yeah, I don't know why I just brain farted, but...
1: U- UKC is... Is the actual Kennel Club and HRC is called is the Hunting Retriever Club, which is affiliated with UKC.
0: Correct. And then the SRS is the Super Retriever Series, which you just won the crown. Um, so we had a quote. it is
1: now affiliated with UKC. There are titles given for SRS now with UKC.
0: Yeah, I, I saw that. That's probably been what in the last year they've been putting the Super yeah, Retriever this year Series. Was the first year. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a big win for anybody in the breeding game.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So one of the questions from our our listeners, um, he basically asked your opinion on, I'll just read his question, Uh, which do you like better, AKC, UKC, or Super Retriever Series?
1: Honestly, I enjoy the Super Retriever Series more than any of them, uh, just because you have to have a dog that's good at everything. Um, In an SRS event, you may run an AKC-style hunt test one series, run a field trial set up the next, you may run an HRC-style set up the third, and then you may run a hybrid in the fourth. So you got to have a dog that's able to do everything. Um, So I'd say I enjoy the SRS more, but I cut my teeth and grew up in HRC. So HRC will
0: always have a special place in my heart. Very cool. And then his second question on that was, do you feel like between the AKC and UKC, which program of or style of tests put out a more well-rounded uh, hunting dog?
1: Uh, as far as a hunting dog is concerned, I'd probably have to say HRC, just simply because you're sitting down in a bucket, you're firing an actual shotgun. There's no attention getters in the field. The dog's got to follow the gun and where it's going. Um, you know, to make a hunting retriever champion or a finished dog, it takes a nice dog, but it doesn't take just an absolutely spectacular dog. Um, now, a master hunter, it takes a lot stronger, more talented, well-trained dog to make a master hunter than it does a hunting retriever champion. Uh but to me, the cream of the crop in that game is a Grand Hunting Retriever Champion when you're talking about hunt tests. I mean, we're talking about tests that are, te- that are judged to such a high standard. Uh, and the dogs just have to be so consistent at that level. So I have to say HRC is more geared toward true hunting scenarios more than what an AKC master test is. A master test is more training scenarios and the dog's ability to think on its feet and respond to train, train responses uh, more so than it is an HRC.
2: So Clark, it's Kevin. I, I'm curious about with the SRS. Like, how do you train f- uh, for everything, really? Because it there's technical, there's more hunting scenarios, there's all sorts of crazy things that they can throw at you during an SRS test. But like, how do you really train a well-rounded dog for anything they could possibly throw at you? Well, you
1: know, you'll see a lot of crazy stuff in the SRS, and you can't really train for the crazy. I mean, you just can't. I mean, you, you have to prepare yourself the best you can. And, and what I mean by that is I know going into this that my weak point is going to be the field trial game because I run primarily uh, hunt tests. So I focus a lot when I'm getting ready for an SRS event on the field trial aspect. Uh, I also do throw a lot of marks from a remote sit out of the layout line and just try to teach those dogs to look out themselves and find the birds being thrown in the field. Uh, but I keep that very simple when it comes down to just looking out of the layout lines and finding the birds from me being away from them. Uh, I try to keep it as simple as I can when it comes to that. I mean, you just want them to learn to, when they're away from you to be, feel comfortable enough to look out there and find the marks and not be worried about being away from them.
2: Right. But now- as
1: far as the other crazy stuff, you really can't train for it. You've just got to do your best to have a well-rounded dog when you get there and hope that they are comfortable enough in the environment to perform well
2: sure yeah that makes sense in terms of like the the air quote crazy types of things that you can see at the srs was there anything notable that you remember from from your your crown champion test
1: uh the second series was pretty pretty different um it was kind of a hybrid type test they threw a indented triple and you had to know off all three birds and then you had to run a blind under the arc of the right bird come back and run a poison bird blind between the short bird and the long left bird uh and then come back and get all the marks so i mean that's not something you're typically going to see at a field trial or at a master test no Um, (laughs) you have to have a dog that is comfortable enough in that situation with those type poison birds to to be able to function um and then our final series was i mean that was a very confusing type setup um i mean we had to do a remote send on a blind from 25 yards away and the first cast was a left over um (laughs) the dogs just don't they don't do that i mean once you get to a certain point training you never train on a remote send on a left over Mm -hmm. you may do a you know remote send on a back cast but how often once you get a master to grand level dog do you ever use an overcast it's very rare Um, So to me, a lot of being successful at the SRS is having dogs that are comfortable enough in their environments and not being worried to where they can function when they get into those situations where it gets confusing. Um, A lot of the mis-training dogs is that it's all force and the dogs must be like a robot. To where reality is, if you want to really highly talented dog that can in the SRS, you need a dog that's comfortable. It's more dog psychology than anything. Uh, Having a dog that can do all the work but feels comfortable enough to go out there and do things that may may be a little contrary to what you would normally train for.
2: Yeah. Do you you think that you do anything unique that gives you the leg up on competition as opposed to other trainers for that? I wouldn't
1: say I do anything unique. Um, You know, it's just about being blessed enough to have some really talented dogs and um, I've run this a long time and this is the first year I've ever won a crown and for sure the first year i ever had seven dogs qualify for the crown I've never had more than two Uh, the only thing different was I approached it a little differently in my training methods and um, was actually a lot less hard on the dogs than I ever have been before going into this year Um, and that seems to have made a big difference
0: yeah, I think if I had to pick up on something that you keep saying is having a dog be comfortable and and in my mind I'm interpreting that as confident. You know, if they're very if, confident,
1: you if, you almost want them cocky.
0: Yeah, like a they got a little swagger. Like yeah, throw anything at me, I'm gonna mark it. I'm gonna go pick them up. But then you also right. think about that under you know the poison birds and the under the arcs knowing them off of the marks and then running your blinds like you still have to have that dog so well conditioned and controlled and disciplined that you're the boss that you can have that control still. So you have to ride that line. I'd imagine of that, you that do. swagger.
1: Um, but one of the things I've learned over the last, honestly, over the last two years in the way of training, I changed my training methods is a lot of that is, is teamwork. Um, and conditioning them does not necessarily require just a whole lot of pressure. Every dog's different. Um, but when I do a lot of poison bird work, there's not a whole lot of pressure involved with it. It's more attrition-based and trying to build a communication line with me and that dog to be able to complete the task at hand. Um, if you start using a whole lot of pressure and trying to get that I'm the boss mentality and you've got to do what I tell you to do, you know, what I tell you to do when I, I tell you to do it. You can tend to overpressure over, then you'll create dogs that flare off the birds, and then you've got a whole different issue in itself. Um, so it's a fine line to walk there, but the big thing is is having a communication line between you and that dog where they understand what you want it to do, and they're not intimidated by it, and they're not scared of the situation that they're looking at. Sure. Um, sometimes you can be a master test and throw a poison bird, and you can see dogs, when they send them, they'll flare way away from the mark. It was a poison bird. And that's simply because they've had a lot of pressure of going back to that poison bird
2: um,
1: rather than maybe taking it slower and teaching the steps and getting them comfortable and understanding the process. Um, and that that's the difference. I mean, between a dog that's doing it because it has to, and a dog that's doing it because it wants to, a dog that's doing it because it wants to is always going to help before a dog that's doing it because it has to.
0: That's a, that's a phenomenal quote to to i I mean uh, that that's fantastic now kevin just mouthed to me can you explain to the person who doesn't understand or know what a poison bird is can you explain what what we're talking about here
1: absolutely a a poison bird is a bird that the dog sees fall uh and we're going to tell it look we don't want you to pick up that bird right now we want you to run a blind retrieve which is something the dog has no clue it's there but we know where the bird is So they have to leave the bird that they saw fall and completely trust us to handle to where the blind
0: is. Yep. So I thank you. And for the duck hunter, let's put this in our frame of mind. We all knock down birds, and me and Clark kill ours dead, and Kevin cripples his, and it's swimming off, and we want to tell the dog where he saw these two land and their belly up in the decoys because clark and i are killers and kevin's a crippler and uh, um we know the dog off of those easy ones and say over here buddy we need you to go get this bird now and not wait for it so in a realistic hunting scenario that's where you could use that in training
1: absolutely i use it all the time when i've got it i mean that's one of the tools that I
2: probably use more than anything. So you, so Clark, you're telling me you got a lot of Kevin the Cripplers
1: that, that come guiding. I got a lot of Cripplers. So
2: Damn. Of cripplers. Damn. That, I mean, it's cold-blooded, but I guess uh, you're the guy to have the dogs to to capitalize <laughs> on the crippling.
0: That's awesome. Um, cool. Good explanation. So now, if you don't mind explaining. The Super Retriever Series to people. So maybe even break it down from like a club event and how a dog qualifies and what they have to, like the series. And I mean, you already did a good job explaining a field trial setup, a hunt savvy setup, and that kind of thing. But like, there's different rules to a Super Retriever Series and how the points are accumulated. Can you explain that?
1: Absolutely. Uh, you've got three different types of SRS events you've got the crown which is the one that everybody's trying to qualify for that's the cream of the crop it's like the super bowl uh but to qualify for the crown they have two type of types of events they have club events and they have classics Uh, classics are just simply they pay out more money a little bigger event than a club event but they're all they're both run the same and the way it works they're going to have four series and a club event and a classic Uh, those four series are up to the judges. They, they really don't have a specific set of rules as far as what they have to throw, uh, other than they have to throw a field trial series in there, and they have to have a hunt test, and they have to have a hunt savvy. Um, so that's really all the, all the rules that they have bound by them. There's no limitations as to how far a marker or blind they can run. There's no limitations to what order they pick up birds or any of that. Um, so you have to have a dog that can do all of that. Now, to qualify for the crown... It's based off of a point system, and you have to have four points accumulated through that calendar year to qualify for the crown. So the way it works is first place is six points, second place is five points, third place is four points, fourth place is three points, fifth place is two, and sixth is one. So if you place in the top three at any point in time, you automatically qualify for the crown. Um, give you an example. All of them but one that I qualified this year out of my seven all had top three placements, except for a dog named Cruz. I think he finished sixth in this year's crown. He had a fourth and a sixth. That's how he qualified. Um, and also, any of the dogs that placed in the top three at the crown the year before automatically qualify for the crown. That's how Stroker qualified. He got second in the crown this year, and he got second in the crown the year before. Um, so that's how you qualify for the crown.
0: Very cool. Um... So now with, let's break it down as far as like if people understand the hunt test game. So if I'm, um, uh, uh, let's just say a senior hunter, we've got to run a double on land, a double on water. You got to run a blind on land, a blind on water. You've got to honor and you got to do a walk up. So the dog walks at heel a bird goes off dog has to sit and then mark the next bird uh they pass you can handle once on a mark so let's say on the landmarks uh my dog picks them both up clean we go to water and i need to handle the bird on one like those are the rules of a hunt test right now in the super retriever series you can handle on marks you can you can do some different things than what we normally would do in training or at an AKC or UKC test. Can you explain that and how you strategically would put your dog in a position to succeed and win, which might Absolutely. be contradictory to how we would train?
1: Yeah, it, it is different. Um, but the setups are a lot typically a lot more difficult. Uh, than your average AKC or HRC test. Uh, there is no pass or fail in the SRS. It is a point system. And it's kind of like golf. The objective is to have the least amount of faults as possible. You know, golf, golfer with the least amount of strokes is going to win the tournament. Same thing with SRS. So they're going to give you points for everything that you do wrong. You can handle on every mark in an SRS series, and you're still going to go on to the second series because um, everybody gets to run two series before they make the cut to the top 12. But the way they judge that is, let's say they throw a big triple with two retired. It's a field trial series. For every mark that you must handle to, if you have to handle to the area of the fall, they're going to give you 10 points for having to handle to the area of the fall, and they're going to give you two for the whistle you blow. And they're going to give you two for every whistle you blow after that, handling to the mark. Um and if you have any cast refusals, they're going to give you five for every cast refusal. So it adds up real quick. And they're also going to be giving you offline penalties. So if you're having to handle to a mark, more than likely the dog's already offline and going to where it shouldn't be. You've already already accumulated points for being offline of going to that mark. Um, so it, it can be strategic at times. Uh, like give you example, this past crown. Uh, if you really paid attention to the way they were judging it, in some instances, it was better to handle your dog quickly to make sure they did not get into trouble than to let them try to hunt and find dig out a bird that they may get into trouble on. So there's uh, a lot of... Many times I saw dogs get really close to a mark, about to get it and just end up hunting off into Never Never Land, and then they have an ugly handle to get back to the bird. Um, so in some cases depending on the judges, you have to watch them because every judge is going to be different each weekend. Sometimes it's better to handle quickly and get the mark rather than having a big hunt, and sometimes it's better to have a dog with a real big hunt and get the mark. It just depends on the judge.
2: It's pretty cool uh, there's a lot of strategy involved with this too. That makes it definitely absolutely. another layer you to it. You have to
1: really pay attention to how they're judging um, and what they're giving dogs points for.
2: Right. Right. Now I'm curious about the difference between Roscoe and Stroker. Uh, is there? I don't. I guess I don't know too much about the dogs, but uh, but is there? Is there anything different about the dogs that Roscoe took the W and and Stroker got second? But is there anything in training that you did differently? Is there any big difference in how they performed that that made the the one versus the two?
1: Yeah, that, there was one series that made roscoe win that srs one in particular and that was the semifinals in the fourth series roscoe basically won the crown in the fourth series uh he got a bird in that series that nobody else got i mean and he did it flawlessly. he was 48 points ahead when we went into the finals i mean he would have had to have absolutely blown completely up not to win that thing and i had a conversation with stroker's owner about it afterwards but because Roscoe came into my hands this past summer. I didn't build Roscoe from a puppy. He was a dog that was given to me by a lady named Tammy Bell that wanted me to work with him because she knew he was special. And I found out real quick that he was special working with him, but he had some things that needed to be addressed to be competitive in the crowd. Um, Stroker, I built from the ground up. You know, he's been with me ever since he was a puppy. Uh, and honestly, the only difference between Stroker getting second and winning is Stroker's five years old and Roscoe's eight. And a lot of this SRS crown game is you need a dog with a lot of experience. And Roscoe's experience paid off on that one bird in the semifinals. And the only difference between Roscoe and Stroker and Stroker not winning is Stroker was consistent the whole way through through if you look at his scores. He's never going to do anything to hurt himself hardly. He's just that type of dog. But the reason why he didn't win last year and he didn't win the year before was he never did anything just spectacular in a series. And that's what you've got to do to win a crown. you got to have that one series that sets you apart from everybody else. And a lot of the reason why he hasn't is, is just age and experience. He's going to win one. It's a matter of time. But he's only five. He's still young for that game.
0: That's a really good point. So I've got a buddy, Josh, who lives in Georgia, and he's an amateur. And he's qualified his dog for the crown think three years in a row and i he didn't make it this year he had a baby um but his dog is now i think nine maybe eight i could be wrong but that was one point he had was if you look at the super retriever series and all the craziness that they throw a two-year there's no two-year-old dog that has enough life experience to step up to the plate and and win i mean they No, no,
1: it's almost impossible.
0: Almost impossible. They have to, seen it all, been there, done that, put me in coach type of attitude, where a a two-year-old would probably have their mind blown because they just haven't seen it all and done it all.
1: Correct. Hooker was the youngest dog to ever complete the crown. Not this year, but the year before, he was four years old. Uh, Lyle had a dog that was four years old in the finals of this crown. But the final series was just a little too overwhelming. Uh, He just was very uncomfortable with what was going on. And a lot of that just had to do with he was a young dog. You know, he's four years old, and that was a whole lot on a four-year-old dog. So when you look at the crown and you think this is the elite of the elite and the youngest dog ever to finish it is four years old, that's saying a lot.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. The
1: two-year-old going into that is, I mean, you may go and you may run and have a good time, but... the chances of you winning or even placing in the top six or so minute, uh, just because of the experience factor. I gotcha.
0: What would you tell someone if they said they wanted to, to try a Super Retriever Series? Like, where would you say that a dog's level should be? Um, you know, I guess I don't even know the answer. Like, I'm, I'm sure it'd have to be a Master Hunter. I'm sure it'd have to be an HRCH. I'm sure it would help if it's a hunting dog and has been on real hunts and it probably darn sure makes sense to run white coat setups so you know
1: uh, all, not... all of that's important every bit of that's important bob but the thing going from my experience when i first started running the srs and i made a big long facebook post about it after uh, i started running the srs eight years ago and i went running with a multiple time grand champion master hunter an HRCH Master Hunter dog that was young, the very first one I went, and I thought they were incredible dogs. And they were, and they, they are. Uh, that was Max and Trigger. And uh, I went and got my tail kicked. I was very quickly humbled by seeing the caliber of dogs that were run there. Um, so the thing is, if you decide you want to run it, go in with an open mind. Don't expect to go in there and win, but go into it looking as a learning experience. Because when I walked away from that first SRS, the thing I thought in my head was, how in the world do these guys have dogs that are that good? You know, I work my tail off, and my dogs can't even, they can't even compete. They can't come close to competing with these dogs. And, uh, you know, I took it as a challenge. You know, I wanted to have dogs like that. And if you go and you run the SRS, it's going to change your training style. It's going to change your philosophy on it. Uh, you're going to challenge your dogs a lot more than you ever had before because you're going to see dogs compete at a level you've never seen before. Um, And, you know, you just can't give up. You know, if that's something you want to do, and it is a fun event. Um, I talked with Corey at Tangle Free Waterfowl the other day, and, you know, they came on board sponsoring, and he said, you know, Clark, one of the things I love the most about the SRS is it's so family-oriented. You know, y'all are all competing against each other, but you generally want everybody to do well, and we do. We want everybody to do well. I want everybody to do well. I just want to do a little better. That's the competitive side of it. But I don't want anybody to not do well. You know, we're all there for each other. Um, But if you go with an open mind and and you're competitive, you know, you have that competitive nature in yourself, it'll make you a better trader.
0: Very cool. What does a normal day of training look like for you? And then I'm gonna break it down after you answer that, and say, what does a normal pre-SRS training look for you? So, when you're just training your hunting dogs and your gun dogs and your trial dogs, what are you doing day to day, week to week, type of thing?
1: Uh, Honestly, it depends on the level of dog, of course. But you know, as far as what I'm gearing toward, well, depend on what I have coming up. You know, if I have a grand coming up. I'm going to be doing a lot more sitting down on a bucket, shooting marks 200 yards and in, and running a lot of 200-yard blinds or so to where if I'm getting ready for a master national, I'm going to do more technical-type water work and land stuff uh, with some poison birds. Um, But as far as my day-in, day-out training, most of the time it's going to be more hunt-test oriented uh, than anything. Um, And I generally try to throw... All of my master and grand level marks to all of my seasoned and finished level dogs, Um, but we help them to complete the task. Uh, And we teach a lot within that. Uh, We will repeat marks if needed. Uh, We will repeat blinds if needed, Um, because to me, it's a lot to do with attitude. Um, We're not going to use just a whole lot of force if they do something wrong, we're going to do more teaching until we get to the point to where we know without a shadow of a doubt that the dog understands what is right and what is wrong, and then that we can use pressure for the wrong decision. Uh, But it's more teaching-oriented than forcing.
0: Very cool. And then before the crown, how does your training for those dogs differ?
1: Um, It it differs a lot. Uh, Like, I didn't go to this year's Master National. The... um, the grand and I went straight to work to 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 get preparing for the crown, uh, and, and it changed. Jack changed changed drastically between the grand and preparing for the crown. I went to throwing three days a week. We ran field trial setups with white coats. Uh, we did a lot of that, and we did a whole lot of control work. Uh, but one of the things I did do that a lot of people overlook is we ran pattern blinds every single day. And people are like, why in the world would you run pattern blinds with this caliber of dogs? Well, pattern blinds build so much. Not not only confidence, but you they're really tight pattern blinds that I run when I'm getting ready for this. And, and it's not necessarily so much for the confidence, but more of dogs working with you to line up and get specific lines. And getting more confidence with working with you at the line. So we ran pattern blinds every single day. Um which is something that not a lot of people do with more advanced dogs. Um, we threw nothing but plastic, except for on our really long birds and our field trial setups. Like I said, I trained primarily for hunt tests. So my dogs tend to struggle with the big white coat setups. So every time we threw a really long single, or if it's a memory bird on a white coat setup, we actually threw clip-wing mallards. That's where when the dogs got out there, they actually had to chase a cripple and get the bird. And this goes back to dog psychology. Um, the dogs that you force to look out there and go get the long birds aren't necessarily going to walk up there and find that gun and want to go get it. But if you trick them into it and wanting to do it, and you start throwing clip ducks or flyers on the long bird, they're going to come up there and they're going to want to find that long station. That's the first thing they're going to find because they know what's out there. They know it's a clip mallard or it's a flyer. Uh, so it's a little something that, that I do different with that. So every long bird we throw is going to be a – you know, a clip-wing mallard that they get to chase around when they get out there. And you'll see a big difference in the dog's attitude. They'll come up there and they'll see the short guns and, boom, they'll find the long cutter. Because that's the most important one to them.
2: Now, Clark, have you have you seen a, uh, an uptick in the drive for a dog when it comes hunting season, when they've done all this type of work with maybe, I guess what you were saying before, where you, where you do these long retrieves and it's a clip-wing mallard at the end of it? Has that... Has that translated well to going back to duck hunting?
1: Absolutely. I mean, these dogs, when they get to duck hunt, I call it, it's their release. It's their break. Uh, Because we work so hard and we expect so much out of them all through the year. Uh, When they get to go home and duck hunt, now they're doing what they were bred to do. This is really what their job is. Uh, And all we're doing with the SRS and Master Hunter and Grand Champions is We're giving them more tools to do this job better uh, and be more successful at it. So I can see a big difference in the dogs as they progress and get more advanced when they go hunting. They're so much more comfortable, and they're able to get more birds than they ever were before just because they've been given so many more tools um, to be able to help them get the birds.
0: Very cool. Um, What is a favorite marking drill that you have? Uh, in some of the podcasts before, we've discussed like the Y drill, um, ABC or W drill. What, what are some drills that you, or maybe you don't do drills, but what, what do you do to increase the dog's ability to mark?
1: Uh, you know, I do uh, ABC drills, and, and I w- will do W drills and Y drills with it. Um, but one of the drills that I use a lot, especially with more older, advanced dogs, Dogs are naturally lazy animals. Uh, They like to mark that a bird is over here by this gutter or it's by this tree. Uh, I like to do a lot of short, what I call write-off marks, is I'll have a bird boy throw a mark and as soon as it hits the ground, the four-wheeler leaves. Uh, And I'll send the dog to find the bird. And I don't care if they have to hunt for 20 minutes to find it, I'm gonna make sure they they stick in there and find it. Um, And then we'll do another one. And what you'll start to see is these dogs will focus on the bird rather than where it came from uh, or what it's in relation to. Because their crutch leaves.
0: Yeah, so actually that's a um, really a good point.
1: That's uh a crutch. <laughs> um,
0: uh, you take
1: that away from them and it makes them start focusing a little more. But I don't do it at extreme distances, no more than 125 <laughs> yards.
0: So my dog Memphis, who you, you met when we trained that one day, she was real young at that point. But earlier this spring, I was noticing that, and it's probably my fault, I have a lot of young dogs, and so she would just get – you know i'd set it up and if it was easy for her then the young dog should be fine and you know i kind of honestly got lazy with her and i noticed that her marking went to hell for a little while and she would take her eyes off the mark she wouldn't head swing she just would glance back at the winger glance back at the bird boy um and then she'd run, run out yeah she'd run out there know she's gonna find it Sometimes she would step on it. Sometimes she'd do a little half-ass hunt. Other times she'd be like, oh, dang, I guess I didn't know where it was and do this stupid hunt. And so I started, I called it organized confusion drill where the, the bird boy would throw it, drive away. And if she looked off, I'd give her a healing stick sit and send her, um, or just send her one or the other. Um, but it really 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 helped her focus on the fall area and be more precise
1: All right because they have to You take the crutch away from them
0: yeah exactly um i was going to ask you another question in regards to that oh i got another question for you this one is another dog on my truck
2: um, <laughs> Bob's just really looking for advice here, Clark. Just just throw him a bone. I don't know.
0: I'm
1: picking up on that. Heck yeah, man.
0: <laughs> so I got this young dog. Uh, she's super nice. I mean, very talented dog, but she yips on the way out to the mark. Just one yip. And, I mean, that's a really unwanted behavior for the owner. She's going to be a guide dog for him. Um... You know, if you allow that, then it could become a bark and then it could become more vocalization at the line. So I've done a ton of different things, really increased obedience. I mean, like made her extremely patient and do heel work and calm her down when she comes out of the box. Um, I've actually healed her all the way. Silent throw, keep healing, sit her down, send her and she's quiet. When you, and actually we get this question a lot for the podcast and for Instagram dogs that are vocal, what do you do in that situation? How do you handle it and what advice could you give me? And then our listeners as well for vocal problems.
1: Well, I mean, it depends on when they're vocal. Now if they're vocal while the birds are coming out, I'm going to give them a a correction to sit. Uh, If they're vocal while while they're leaving for a bird, A lot of that's excitement. I mean, pretty much all of that is excitement. Um, So if they yip, I may stop them and recall them to my side with no pressure involved whatsoever uh, and make them settle down before I send them. And every time they yip, I may may just recall them. Uh, But another thing that I do is a lot of that is if you watch a dog that tends to vocalize when they leave. When you throw that bird, you can see their whole body tense up when that bird's in there and when it hits the ground. Um, So you need to teach that dog to relax and, and if you can teach it to relax a lot of that vocalization will stop now it's not going to happen overnight and it's going to take a long time to teach them to do that and, and one of the ways you can do it is if I have a dog that's vocalizing when they leave and it becomes a chronic problem I'm going to throw the bird where they can see it laying on the ground and I'm just going to sit reach down and I'm just going to gently start petting their head and I'm going to pet their head until I see them just take that breath and and relax. When I see that, I'm going to send them. And most of the time, they're not going to vocalize when you see them finally take that breath and relax. Right. And you're just going to do this over and over and over and over again until you don't see that dog when it goes up there and that bird comes out but their whole body just starts shaking and they tense up. So you've got to teach them to relax with it. Pressure is not going to solve any vocalization problem. I've right. never seen it solve it. Right. Pressure, if anything, nine times out of ten, is going to make it worse. Um, so you've got to teach them how to relax. Right. Um, Pressure is just simply going to make them more tense.
0: Right. No, and that that's exactly what I've been doing. Her name's Kenai and that's I've been trying different methods. You know, like like I was saying earlier, like heal her to the line and heal her through the mark being thrown. And wait for her to simmer down a little bit and send her. And that movement has created a distraction, if you will. But now we've got to move on and actually get her steady and do more advanced stuff. I mean, she can mark like nobody's business even with all this stuff going on. But I just don't want a problem to persist. And I don't want it to get worse. So... I've been taking it slow, and I think that's the advice I would give anybody, is take it slow, be patient, and fix the problem. Don't work through it where it remains and gets worse.
1: Correct. Now, Correct. the other... You were asking about Roscoe earlier. Yeah. Uh, Roscoe, when I first got him, uh, I ran the first SRS event I ran with him. He he made the top 12, but he wasn't in my top two, so I couldn't take him to but... the to the top 12. Uh, the next two I ran, he finished um, third both times. And I learned a trait about Roscoe was he was really strong in the first two series, and then the third and fourth series, he was so worked up, he got too high that he could not focus and perform at the level he needed to. And it's basically the same problem as having a vocal dog. It's just not shown in vocalization. Uh, it's shown in concentration rather than vocalization. Uh, So that was one of the things that I had to really work on with Roscoe. And one of the ways that I did is, um, you know, when you train a dog, you never see that high that you see when you're running a test most of the time. So you have to create that high. So what I I do with Roscoe, every day I got him out of the truck, I would get this bouncy Kong out, and I would throw it, and I would throw it until he was just... So crazy, his eyes were glazed over over this calm. And then I go train. So I created that high to where I could teach him how to relax and focus and, and actually function with that intensity level, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, so sometimes you just have to create that high. If you're getting, like if you have vocalization at a test, but you're never getting it in training, well, you've got to create that same intensity and high that they get when they run a test. And the only way you're going to do that is by doing things a little outside the box. Sure. So, you know, you see people when they train, they're like, oh, I don't want to get my dog all worked up before I train. I'm the exact opposite. I want my dog high as a kite when I go up there to train. I mean, I want them bouncing off the walls ready to go. Because if I get some corrections and getting them to think the way and respond the way I want them to, when they're at that type of intensity level, then they're more likely to perform the way I want them to when we're actually in the testing or trialing situation.
0: How do you handle vocalization in the duck blind? That's a question we get, I bet, once a week somebody sends me. My dog doesn't (laughs) do it in training, but it does it during the hunt. How would you tell people to handle it? Yeah, whines consistently or barks when ducks are landed in the decoys, whatever.
1: I generally always revert back to the sit command. If they're whining when the birds are working, I will simply look down at the dog until it's sit and give it a light nick with a collar. Sit means sit your butt down and be quiet. I don't make a huge deal about it. I'm not going to give them an absolute ton of correction. I'm just going to give them enough that they be quiet. If they continue to do it, I'm just going to continue to do it back to them. Sit, knit, sit, knit, until they stop doing it. if you crank the pressure up too high, you're not gonna get the response you want. It needs to be just conti- you know, just continue <clears throat> being consistent with if they continue to vocalize, sit, nick, sit, nick, if they continue to vocalize, sit, nick, until they stop. Right. Uh Nab, which is a dog that fit in this crown, Jastroka's mom, was terrible about vocalizing when she was a young dog. And that's the only way we ever broke her. Um, you can't let your emotions get involved with it and get real heavy-handed because they're not going to understand what they're getting the correction for. But keep it low pressure and, and always revert back to sit because that was the first thing we taught them.
0: Right. So that's that would be indirect pressure versus the quiet. Indirect pressure. Right.
1: Versus. Because we've never, I mean, I don't know if anybody has ever taught a dog how to cut off pressure because of noise. So we've got to go back to something that we taught them how to cut off pressure to
0: Sure.
1: <clears throat> and we call the condition them to sit, so that's something that we can give them pressure to indirectly for the noise. Right. So we're telling them quiet and giving them pressure. Well, we never taught a quiet command, and we never taught them how to respond to pressure with quiet command. Uh, so we need to revert back to something that they understand and know.
0: Very good, very good. All right, I'm gonna keep ripping through some people's questions here. Alec comment. Um, asked if you had any litters coming up.
1: Uh, I've got one that I'm hoping that Nab is pregnant. Uh, we bred her to a dog named Mason, which ran in this last ground. it has got three SRS wins, uh, but pretty much all of those are spoken for. Um, I don't have any other litters myself coming up. Roy, uh, Roscoe's owner has a really nice litter on the ground right now, out of crop and a uh, female named Roxy that she owns and. Quite honestly, Roxy is better than than Roscoe. I know that's crazy to say, but she really is. Um, Roxy won the SRS amateur event at Oak this year, and Tammy just couldn't make it uh, due to some things going on in her life at this crown runner in the amateur. But she would have been a very strong competitor to win the, uh, the amateur division in the crown. It's Roxy, very. Um, She's got with of her puppies on the crown.
2: Clark, what what is well what is something that you look for in a puppy or in a in a Lineage that you think would be great for the Super Achiever series.
1: What do I look for for a Super Achiever series? I, I um, guess. I guess. If I'm looking at, if I'm looking at a litter per se, and I, I'm picking out a puppy, I'm going to want the most outgoing, bold puppy there is, uh, because that's generally a puppy that's the most comfortable in its environment, which is something that I keep hitting on. Is dogs need to become comfortable in performing in their environment. Uh, as far as pedigrees-wise, I'm I'm very strict on the pedigrees, but I'm more strict on temperament. Uh, take Stroker, for example. Stroker is calm, cool, collected at the line. Uh, he's not exactly a fire-breathing dragon in the field, but he's super intelligent. He never does anything to get himself in trouble. So when I'm looking at a breeding, I'm going to look at both sides of the siren dam, and I'm going to look at their temperament. If the sire is a fire breathing dragon and he's crazy, I want to see that female be a more mellow, laid-back female. Or vice versa. Uh, Because I'm always a believer if you breed fire with fire, you're asking to be burned. Um, Because ultimately we need dogs that we can control to be able to do these things. So if we can't control them, we really don't have a lot that we can work with. Uh, And there is such thing as having too much. There is such thing as having too much dog to control. So you have to be careful with that.
0: With a hunting dog, you know, I guess Kevin's question with the Super Retriever Series, like, what do you look for? And I agree with you that more medium to high would make sense. But for the average layperson getting their first dog, um, maybe talk to them about certain pedigrees you like to look for or uh, where you would suggest they go to find the right dog for them.
1: So, um, as far as, you know, you being your first dog and you want to train it yourself to hunt, pedigree does mean a whole lot. So, don't be afraid to go spend 1000 to $2,000 on a puppy. It's going to save you so much time and effort as far as training the dog, especially if you're going to do it yourself. If I'm looking for an amateur that wants a dog that they can start to run hunt tests with, and they can start you know, training it to hunt themselves. I'm going to look at dogs just to throw out some names out of like Magnolias, Hammer, and Hank that Ronnie Lee ran and continues to run. He's a very cool, calm, collective, laid-back dog. And his puppies, a lot of them are that way. And they're easy to control. They're not hard to train. They're super intelligent. Or Big Black Boot, which is Stroker's daddy. Puppies out of him. Or something like Stroker. Stroker's very easy to train. Um, If it's going to be your first one, I wouldn't recommend going out there and buying a dog out of, let's say, Cosmo or something along those lines that are just known to be fire-breeding maniacs Uh, because you're going to struggle to keep them under control. So buy something that's a lot more level-headed as far as the breedings are concerned, and it'll be a lot easier to work with.
0: I've seen a lot of dogs right now. The puppy market seems to be flooded in some respects crazy crazy flooded and a lot of people are getting hybrid dogs like fcafc you know and then they're taking that bitch and breeding them to another fcafc and it just seems that we're uh as a society as a retriever community really breeding high-end dogs for someone who just wants a a great gun dog and I always encourage people to buy good pedigree and intelligent animals with their health clearances without a doubt. but I do think that there is something like you were saying of too much dog for a first timer or someone just wants a hunting companion. eighty percent of the time is gonna be a house dog and there's too much ass end in them to for their own good
1: right, right. and it happens all the time people buy dogs for their first dogs and nine times out of ten if you watch an amateur that needs help with something it's most of the time it's with line manners or it's something to deal with control
0: with that being said the number one thing i try and explain to people is good obedience
1: yeah everything goes back to obedience every bit of it
0: sure um when you get a puppy talk to me about the first six months so before they send them to a pro, what should they be doing to acclimate and work with this dog in that first six months? Like if, if someone calls you up and says, Hey, got a, you know, stroker puppy, it's coming to you at six months old. What do I do?
1: The, the main thing I'm going to stress to them is socialization. If that dog is around as many different people, places and things as possible. Um, if you can take it to PetSmart, Petco, Wiki, Tractor Supply, anywhere you can take it, a baseball game, football game, as many different atmospheres as you can get that dog in to help them be comfortable. Again, going back to being comfortable in their environments, you need to do. Um, as far as retrieving, the big thing I want them to do is build up as much retrieving desire as possible. And that doesn't mean throw the bumper as many times or the ball as many times until the dog doesn't want to do it anymore. It means throw the ball two or three times and get the dog absolutely crazy about it, take it away, then do it again the next day. Always take take the retrieve away with him wanting more. I don't like them to start putting structure in their lives just as yet. If you want to do treat training with sit here and heal and reward them for a response to sit here and heal, I'm good with that. But as far as them having a lot of general structure in their life until they're six months old, I believe it should be more reward-oriented and building a desire to retrieve.
0: Couldn't agree more. Um, I would also include let us do the gunfire work or, Mm -hmm. or do it the right way. You know, start far away, work closer, don't take them to the Fourth of July party and think, you know... Some, what are those, M80s are going to be uh, any use of the dog?
1: Right. I, I would try to shy away from doing anything with loud voices with it. Um, let, let, let the pro handle that.
0: Sure, sure. Um, what about, I mean, I'm a big proponent of getting the dog in the water young, but explain to people how you get dogs introduced to water properly. Um. so it's done right.
1: I generally would not introduce a, water, a dog to water, a puppy to water, like right now with the water temperatures. I like it to be more summer, uh, and I like the water temperature to be at least 60 degrees or more. Uh, I don't want the dog to its first experience to be in really cold water and be like, ah, that wasn't real fun. I, I froze to death when I got it. There. I want it to be something fun. Uh, I'm never going to place the dog in the water myself. I'm never going to throw it in them uh i'm just going to gently coax them in if it requires me getting in the water to coax them into it i will and when they do get in the water i make a really big deal about it Uh, i try to get them in the water retrieving and just doing baby steps to where hey they just walk into the water and get it and come back and they go a little further and a little further and a little further until they are swimming when they do swim and get it you make a really big deal about it. it needs to be fun and exciting and they need to know they did something that's a big deal uh, but never take a dog down there and force it into the water as a puppy. For sure, it'll get them in the water when the water's cold.
0: Yeah, I would add the last part of that would be you know, uh, going to like an ocean or a big lake with rolling waves and stuff like that. I usually have it be a gently sloping, calm pond um, where there's not a lot of things that could scare them.
1: Right. You, you want it smooth water, you don't want it choppy and you would rather have it being gently sloping into the water.
0: Very good. Another question we get often is a dog loves bumpers but won't pick up a duck. What do you tell those type of people?
1: Well, think back to the very beginning, more than likely that dog didn't want to pick up bumpers to begin with either. Uh, And you had to condition them to where they enjoyed it. Um, You just have to play with them enough until you get them to pick up the bird. And when they do, make a big deal out about about it. You know, I'm a big proponent of being a cheerleader for the dog. Uh, So when we get puppies in that have never picked up a bird, uh, we just start playing with them with a bird. We don't make it a big deal if they don't pick it up. We just play with them until they do. Uh, And when they do, we make a really big deal out of it, and we get overly excited about it. They get overly excited about it, and then they start to get to where they love the bird. Uh, Very, very, very rarely am I ever going to take a dog and force it to a bird before fetch. Uh, before it's got no point to point point where it loves to get birds on its own, uh, so just be persistent with it. You know, uh, you may want to cut a wing or two off the, the bird and strap it around a bumper and get it used to the dog picking up the, the dog getting used to picking up a bumper and having feathers feathers in its mouth. So just think outside the box. You know, if you need to cut some feathers off and strap them all to a bumper, or you know, other things, just whatever you can do to get feathers in the dog's mouth and get it comfortable with it.
0: Very cool, very cool. Clark, you got any other hunting plans this fall or winter?
1: Uh, I'll just be pretty much guiding here at Big Creek and uh, uh all the way until the end of duck season, and then I'll be going back to training and trying to build some more really nice dogs. I've got some more upcoming SRS dogs that are going to debut this year, and uh, we'll just try to get back to qualifying dogs for the crown and try to win another one.
0: Are you going anywhere for a winter trip?
1: No. No, I'll be here.
2: What what does your hunting guiding look like? Is it like big open water on a big boat? Are you in kind of like some flooded timber? Or like what's it look like down there?
1: Uh, We've got a little bit of everything. We've got flooded rice fields, bean fields. uh, We have timber. We have sloughs. I mean, we've got a little bit of everything in this place. Um, Wow. So... You know, when you hunt down here, you may be in timber one day, you may be in the Fiat rice field the next, you may be in a the next day. Are uh, you? We have a little bit of every variety.
2: Yeah, I guess so. Are you? How many dogs are you running for that, or guiding with that?
1: Uh, I'm using about three or four different dogs that I'm guiding with right now.
2: Who are do they, you use? Yeah, are they your specific dogs, or are they like the? Uh,
1: actually, actually, none of them are my.
2: Uh, We've just taken dogs from people,
1: Clark. <laughs> They're actually all quiet dogs. I've got one that's an up-and-comer. named I mean, thanks. Uh, Freddie King actually did the basics on him, and then his owner sent him to me, and uh, he ran a master test or two this, this past fall, and he'll run his first SRS next year. Um, he's out of a dog named uh, FC, Grand Hunting Retriever Champion, performance enhancing drug, Juice. Oh, baby. Uh, and then I've got Man, which is one of my SRS crown competitors. Uh, Wayne, which is an SRS Crown competitor. Um, I've got a little dog named Voodoo that I've hunted some. So actually, I don't have a single one of them that's actually mine. No I've way. got a little puppy coming up named Tease. It's had a stroker, but she's she's not even old enough to be in formal training yet. And then I've got Max over here at the lodge who's 14, so you know he's he's not exactly. He would love to go hunting, but he just physically can't.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, are you hunting mostly labs?
1: All labs. Now, I've got a bunch of golds over here that I'm actually working with uh, in the afternoons, um, but I haven't hunted any of them yet.
0: How do you like the juice puppy?
1: I like him a lot. Uh, I would not recommend him for the first time. He's buyer. Uh, he's really hot. <laughs> what? He has a lot of drive desire. Uh, he's going to be a really good five-plus-year-old dog once he settles down and really learns how to focus himself. He's going to be amazing. Uh, but he's only two. Um, he's very solid master-level dog right now, two years old. Um, we're going to start introducing him introducing him this year in the SRS game. And uh, like I told his owner, told Jay, I told JS, you know, we're going to start running a minute, but don't expect him to win. And that's what I told Stroker's owner when we started. We have to run them to let them start to experience this game and learn how to figure things out in this game. Um, So we'll start running him this year and let him get some experience, and hopefully it'll pan out when it's 5 and 6, and he'll start running real well. So
0: that little dog I was telling you about with the little bit of vocalization, she's off a juice, and she's probably Mm -hmm. the fifth juice puppy that I've worked with, and I, I really do love all of them. I I really. Well, they
1: give you a hundred and ten percent every single day.
0: No matter whether you're doing heel work or marks or whatever, they're ready to go.
1: Right, right. I mean, they give you all they have. The biggest thing that banks has issues with is uh, if I go up and set up a trading scenario and I've got say I'm throwing five singles. If I if he relaxes, he'll go out there and absolutely pin every single one of the marks. But a lot of the times, he'll go out there and just have this huge, god-awful hunt on the first mark, or maybe the second mark. And after he gets that out of the way, he'll go out there and pin the marks. So he gets so worked up knowing that he's going to work that he's just going somewhere rather than focusing on where he's going. Uh, So once he gets that out of the system and he's really focusing on the job at hand rather than just going, uh, he's going to be a really special dog.
0: Are you doing that? What are you doing to solve that issue? Are you doing the have the bird boy drive away type of thing to make him really focus on no. you're just throwing it? No, are you stopping him and casting
1: anything? Uh, I don't make an issue of it, Bob. I just I've seen it enough that it will eventually work itself out. If you start making big issues of it, you can actually make it worse. Gotcha. Um, so I, I just let it work itself out. You know, if he needs to hunt for five minutes to find a bird, I'm gonna just sit there and watch him hunt, and he's eventually gonna get tired of, of hunting and start focusing more. I agree. Uh, so I don't make a big deal out about about it at all. I just let it go, um, and he eventually, as he gets older, he, you'll see him start to relax, focus more because you know those big hunts take a lot out of him. Exactly. And they don't uh, they'll eventually start to, over time, you'll see them start to relax. But if you start making a big deal about it and applying pressure or recalling them because they're having big hunts, you're actually taking that stimulation level of that uncertainty to a higher level rather than taking it down.
0: Right, they become frantic. Like, I can't find it, I can't find it, I'm going to hunt bigger and try right. harder then and get weird.
1: frantic, I can't find it, i got to find it rather than just looking for it. And, again, that goes back to being comfortable in their environment. Then you're creating them a dog that's not comfortable in hunting for a bird because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. Right.
0: I still think that what I call the organized confusion marking drill where the bird boy drives away or drives to another white pole or, or uh, like a...
1: Yeah, it, it'll help on it. Yeah. Um, really, the only thing that's going to make it go away is just the ancient experience. Sure, sure. I mean, it's just going to take time. Cool.
2: Now, Clark, with all the guiding that you're doing, are you able to get out and hunt yourself much at all, or are you pretty much uh, you know, running the calls, running the dogs for different customers?
1: Uh, very rarely do I get out to go hunt by myself anymore. Oh, it's man.
2: pretty
1: much taking customers, or uh, the few days that I do have off, I generally don't want to go hunting. I want to sleep in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's up fair. I'm morning at 4.35 o'clock, and I'm not in bed until 9.30, 10 o'clock
2: Man. Well when you when you do get out and go hunting, I guess, what kind of what what's your gun of choice?
1: Uh, I use a Beretta A four hundred extreme.
2: How long have you been running that? You like it?
1: Uh, three years now. I love it. Absolutely love it. It's a little heavier gun, but shoots well, uh, less recoil and I've had great luck out of it.
2: Very cool, very cool. Now if you were to give me advice as a newer gun, uh, I don't know, gun gun dog enthusiast, I guess you could say. I've been hunting for a little while, but have been running my own dogs for just a few years now. But if you were to give me some advice on how to be maybe a better hunter, better gun dog trainer, what would you I don't know, give me the rundown. That's a broad question. It is guys. a very broad question, but that's a very broad question. <laughs> Damn Clark, but I'm asking for advice, brother. What do you got for me?
1: Um patience. Yeah. Patience, patience.
2: patience. That's a that's a life uh, lesson. <laughs>
1: right right um you know if you're just starting out duck hunting you know it's going to take you a while to figure out you know where the ducks do want to be and where they don't want to be you know how to call a duck when to call and when not to call when not to call is just as important of when to call Uh, and it goes back to the srs we talked about it takes an experienced dog to complete at the srs if you hunt with a lot of experienced hunters you're going to learn a lot more and the more experienced you become, the more successful you're gonna be at killing ducks. Right. So be patient. You know, you yeah. may not be successful in your first season of duck hunting and you may not kill a whole lot of ducks, but just be patient and be willing to learn and try to go with people that are experienced and you know, everybody that is experienced for the most part it wants to pass on this tradition to others, especially to younger younger people. Um, but just try to put yourself in a situation where you can actually learn from somebody that has a lot of experience.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good that's good advice for a new hunter. Where where did uh, when did you start hunting? How'd you get bit by the bug?
1: <laughs> Man, I I grew up duck my whole life. I think my first duck hunt ever went on. I was like six years old. And I had a Red rider BB gun.
2: Really? My dad
1: let me carry out there, and I thought I was killing every duck that came through. In reality, I don't even think I had BBs in the uh, so gun. I still that. give
2: that excuse. That's okay uh, though.
1: But, you know, I, I grew up doing it, you know. That's been my whole life. Uh, when I was in high school and junior high, we had a duck camp over in Tallahassee County, Mississippi. And if it was duck season on the weekend and we had school, that's where I was every weekend. When I got out for Christmas break, I was at duck camp until school came back in. Um,
2: that's awesome. That's
1: kind of where I got my love for hunting and my love for dogs because we always had dogs, you know, duck dogs when I
2: Did you always run labs growing up?
1: I always had labs.
2: That's awesome. What was your What was your first lab? Uh, what was your first lab's name?
1: Uh, the First one I can remember is my dad had a dog named Bosco. He was a black lab, you know. And then we had a dog named Deek, and we had a dog named Dutch. Uh, that was the three that I can go back to remember the most. And you know, looking back on it, man, I thought they were incredible dogs. And then they were. They were great honey dogs. But right. Knowing what I know now. They weren't even season level dogs. <laughs> uh, but they got all our ducks. You know? Yeah, man. And to me, that was the greatest thing ever. Uh, and me and my dad would go out we'd train the dogs. And, you know, all we knew was throw birds and let the dogs go get the birds. You know, that's all they knew. Uh, they didn't know hand signals or anything like that. But, you know, they would mark and they would retrieve, you know, triples and quads on the water with no problem.
2: That's a heck of a meat dog, uh, but man. You know, what
1: I know nowadays, they weren't anything just spectacular. But, you know, at the time, they were the greatest thing in the world.
2: Oh, that's awesome. What what color labs were they?
1: Bosco was black, then Deke and Dutch, they were both chocolate.
2: Nice. If you were to like if you were to only have one color lab the rest of your life, what, what color would you run?
1: It'd be black, for sure. Are you a black lab guy? <laughs> yep, black for sure.
2: They take a damn fine picture. They're good looking dogs. Yeah, they do. Are you more of they like do. the But
1: I did win my first crown with a yellow one, so I'm not against yellow
2: ones. <laughs> there you go. Nice. I like the
1: yellow ones, too. If
0: you had a bucket list breed, what would it be?
1: A bucket list breeding. Uh, <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, but it's actually a dog that ran this last crown. Uh, she's won two crowns. Uh, Lyle runs a dog named Indy. and uh, Indy didn't have her best performance in this crown, but I've seen Indy do some absolutely incredible things. Uh, if if we could do a breeding with Indy and a dog named FCAFC True Marks Holland days. I would absolutely love to have one of those, but uh, that won't ever happen. You know, I think Holland's going sterile now, and uh, I don't even know if they have any semen available or not. But that would be kind of my dream breeding. I, I would definitely jump on board, get in line, and really wouldn't care what they cost. I, I would have to have one. of them.
2: Now, now, how many dogs do you have personally that are that are your dogs?
1: How many do I have personally? I co own Nab, Max, and Tees, so I have three.
2: So you got three, and they're all labs, then? hmm. Yeah, gotcha, labs. gotcha. Now, have you ever gotten into the pointer game at all?
1: No, I've never messed with really any pointers. I've traded some Boykins and uh, some older retrievers, but never really messed with really any pointers.
0: I worked with a bunch this summer and had some fun with them and Kevin and I both own some English setters. They've been really fun. I mean, it's a it's a cool break from the retrievers and they're really fun, man, going out in the grouse woods for an hour or pheasant fields or putting out chucker or quail. It's uh it's been a fun it's just different. Yeah, it's totally different than what I've always known and learned and loved and so it almost feels like a little vacation from you know marks and blinds and t-pattern and force fetch it's just they're cool little dogs it's it's been fun ride i know they're
1: full of energy and they're always ready to go but i've never really been able to mess with them all. and i honestly right now I, I don't know if i could do a whole lot of it you know I've, I've got a bad hip and uh hopefully i can get that taken care of here before too long but getting around and doing all that walking, I don't know if I could do too well with that. <laughs> yeah, dang,
0: buddy. Dang. Well, Clark, do me a favor. Tell everybody where they can find you and your kennel, and if somebody wanted to send a dog to you or learn about your program, talk to them about where they can find you, brother.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you can find me at, at Clark Kennington on the Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. You can find my Kennington Retrievers page there. Uh, I have a website, skinningtonretrievers.com. I believe it has my old, old phone number there. Uh, if you want to contact me, my number is 662-792-2520. Uh, and I'm always open to help people. Um, Bob, you know, I have, I've helped many amateurs in the past, and I'm a firm believer in helping the amateur that new guy coming into the sport. I'm a pro, and I make a living at doing this, but I can't make a living at this game without having the amateur there to help put on the test. Uh, so I feel like as a pro, it's it's also my job to help the amateurs get more involved and help them progress and grow the sport. Uh, because without them, I can't make a living. We uh, can't put on the test without them.
2: Cool. So if
1: anybody is anywhere near the bottom Texas area or in Arkansas this winter and uh, just wants to pick my brain or maybe come by and train, I mean, they're more than welcome to, and I'm always open to helping.
0: Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, can't thank you enough for joining us tonight and taking time out of your busy schedule. I'm super proud of you for your first and second place this year. I know how hard you work and how much time it takes to make a dog, and so I'm, I'm really proud of the success you've had and will continue to have, and I'm excited to follow along next year and see where these dogs take you, man.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Bob. It's It's a lot of hard work, but a lot of it has to do with being blessed to being able to stand next to some pretty incredible animals. Without them, you know, hard work doesn't mean anything without having them.
0: I hear you. Well, Clark, thanks so much for your time tonight, and uh, good luck this hunting season. Knock them dead, and we'll stay in touch, all right?
1: Appreciate it, Bob. Y'all have a great night.
0: All right, later. Hey, patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters It's a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in. Let's go. Join the community. We appreciate it and we'll see you there.
2: I'm not the only